Hi, I'm Tracy Malone, and this is Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere. One of the reasons I chose to do this podcast is because I believe that everyone has a great story to tell. We have all lived interesting lives, and I love to hear the path people have taken to get to where they are now. Christina is one of those surprise packages that I was fascinated by. She has a wonderful story to tell about her childhood in Spain. She recounts being a small and timid child and how her mother, who did not want her to miss out on a life with horses, decided she should learn to ride on a pony instead of on a large horse, as was normally the way children were taught in her country. Her mum bought a pony from England for Christina to learn to ride, and sometime later, one summer, her sister began offering riding lessons on him. In just a couple of months, she was booked out. Thus, soon after, with mum at the helm, they began the first children's riding school to use ponies in Spain. Christina went on to compete in eventing and came very close to representing Spain at the Barcelona 1992 Olympics. She trained in England for several years and although she missed out on Olympic selection, she represented her country at three-star CCI events, including the Young Rider European Championships. Her level of riding, as you can see from the pictures in my blog, was right up there with the best. Life then took Christina to New Zealand and subsequently Australia, where after some years she came to work at Horses and People magazine. Once she decided to become an owner of the magazine with Maxine Ellison, who you will hear from on next week's episode, the magazine began to change. It went from an event schedule that let you know what was coming up in the horse world to a magazine with a clear vision of making the world better for horses by educating their owners on the many facets of owning and interacting with horses. It's a fantastic story of the vision and passion it takes to put something of such a high standard to print each month and the values that she is driven by that are evident in every page of the magazine. Here is Christina. Christina, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you very much, Tracy, for inviting me. Could you first tell us, what is it that you do? So I am the editor of Horses and People magazine, which is a publication that is in print and digital format. And we are based in Rosewood in Queensland, but we the print um, publication is available throughout Australia. Uh, we also do subscrip- print subscriptions in, in New Zealand. And then it's also in digital form, so it's available worldwide as well. And how long has the magazine been running for? So the magazine started as a small, local and free publication in the mid-90s. It has changed a lot through the years. It's gone through a few different hands. I own it with uh, my business partner, Maxine Ellison, and we have been working together and had the had the control of the magazine since 2009. I really look forward to diving into the magazine a little bit later, but first I'd love to hear a bit more about you. Have you always been around horses? Did you grow up with them? I was born in Madrid in Spain, and my mother was brought up in, in the UK. My grandparents, her parents, 
exiled from Barcelona after the Spanish Civil War and went to work in the UK. My grandfather was a surgeon. He worked a lot during the Civil War and then afterwards as well um, when he was asked to work in, in Oxford and to help with uh, organising the medical services during the Second World War. My mother grew up in, in the UK and she had horses in the local area. So even though her parents were not horsey at all, she grew up knowing friends and having, having a horse at some stage. And she, want, she always wanted to continue riding when she then moved to Madrid. And she wanted us to learn, uh, my brother and sister and myself, she wanted us to enjoy horses as well. So we started riding when I was probably about 10 years old. And how far did that riding take you? So we started off just having riding lessons at the local equestrian club. And my brother and sister, being older than than me, were a little bit braver. And uh, in Spain at that time, there were no ponies available to learn to ride on. The riding used to happen on old horses. You would spend as much time as you needed in a little round yard going around on an old big horse. And I was a little bit frightened of, I had an accident at some stage and I was a little bit frightened and I didn't really want to ride. So my mother went to the trouble of finding me a pony because of her connections in the UK. Um, She found me a pony in the UK and imported it to Spain. And it was the first pony that had set foot on that riding club ever. One of the things I remember was when, when he first arrived and when we used to come out into the arena all the horses would go ballistic because um they'd never seen a small horse before so that was quite 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 interesting and there was a big stigma about ponies in general because they were seen as oh people's idea of a pony was just a little shetland that uh had been uh, brought up as a bit of a toy or a trick pony at a circus or something like that and they were they were seen as nasty and naughty and a little bit the same thing happens here today. But in those days, it was in Spain, it was very widespread. And so it was quite interesting to have the pony. All that negativity about them drove my mother to push the fact that, you know, the same as a pair of shoes, you need to have, <laughs> you need to have them in the size that fits. If you want little children to learn to ride, they should be on a pony that, that they can handle, that they can tack up, that they can look after. Yeah, it's about confidence as well, isn't it? Yes, that's right. For the, for the rider, yeah. 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 So at some stage we ended up finding another pony and my pony didn't have a stable anymore at this ridings club. So we brought it home to a little block of land next door and it was the beginning of the summer holidays and and one of our neighbours knocked on the door, asked if um, their their child could learn to ride this pony. And my sister started giving this child lessons. And by the end of the summer, she had 45 children that were riding it. <laughs> Talk about word of mouth. Yes. So it, it grew uh, quite fast. And my mum then started to build a riding school around just next on the block of land next door. And then 
eventually we found a block of land nearby and it grew it grew from there yeah wonderful and is that was that a pony club or a riding school what's it called is it still there so it was the first riding school ever and it's it's really classed as a riding school so uh, people in spain tend to live in cities and where there's nowhere to keep a horse so if you want to ride horses you tend to adjust them at riding clubs and so this riding school that my mother started was the only riding school in Spain that was using ponies uh, to teach children. So we it revolutionized a little bit the way that children learn to ride. And it grew um, and grew until there were, on average, 400 children going through the gates every, every week. And um, wow. we had lots of ponies and so I grew up in a riding school environment and it was really a privileged situation because I was surrounded by progressive instructors that were open-minded about ponies and about the the way children should learn to ride and I also had access to lots of different horses and ponies and I started teaching myself at an early age so I started helping with some of the younger children very early on yeah wow your mother sounds like an incredible woman it's like the mother we all dreamed of when you're a horse lover (laughs) she's certainly an incredible woman and she was always the organizer and she never did the actual teaching or didn't do that much writing herself but she was organized everything and the driving force behind it and the riding school is still in existence it is in the outskirts of Madrid even though it is not in her hands now my sister and her husband have their own riding school and my mother has been involved until very recently again you know in the in the office always managing the organizational side so and my sister's riding school is still going strong today um, it's called San Jorge, and it's in, in the outskirts of Madrid. Yeah. Fantastic. And did this, I imagine you would have been competing. Did you do your high school and competing in Spain? So, yes, there was always the opportunity to compete. And the main thing in Spain at the time was jumping, show jumping. So as soon as we could if we wanted to compete we we really had to get our horses to a certain level and so that we could go show jumping so I did a lot of show jumping but my passion was eventing so I really liked probably because the horses I had at the time were also talented in that area I liked the I liked to do a bit of dressage and I like and I loved jumping cross-country so I um, that's the way I went And I was able, yeah, I had the resources and the horses and the instruction and the coaching to be able to to compete at the national level in in Spain. Yeah. Wonderful. And what happened after high school? Where did the world take you? So um, I had a nice horse and he had been going very well in the national circuit 
eventing. And I had the opportunity to travel with him to the UK. And my first year of college, I was studying graphic design. And I, I had the opportunity to take my horse to the UK for the summer season to do some events over there and, and work towards a three-day event at the sort of towards the end of the summer season. And while I was there, I, there was an outbreak of African horse sickness in Madrid and they closed the borders. Um, so I couldn't bring my horse back. And we managed to organize it that I would take a year off college and I would stay with my horse because I didn't want to sell him. And so, uh, so I had a really interesting experience eventing over in the UK for, uh, for 18 months. And I upgraded my horse to advanced level in that time. And I had the opportunity to compete at three-star level over there, which was certainly a big education. Wonderful. And then you, did you end up going back to Madrid after that? So I went to Madrid. Um, yes, after once they opened the, the borders, I went to Madrid and I was eventing there. And it was the time when the, it was in the late 80s and Barcelona had been picked as the Olympic venue for Barcelona in 1992. And so all of a sudden there was a lot of funding and a sponsorship available and because of my experience in the UK with my horse I was automatically selected for the squad that would be training towards the Barcelona Olympics wow so I again had the opportunity to travel to the UK this time funded and I spent three or four years eventing there and working in the UK. And I had uh, a few horses and again, fantastic education. I didn't make the final selection, but it was a fantastic experience. And then I returned back to Spain once the Olympics were over and the funding sort of dried up. I then took my horses back to Spain and finished my degree and, and carried on coaching. Yeah, I was coaching full time. Yeah. Wonderful. And somewhere in this picture, you ended up in Australia. How did that happen? Yes, that was an interesting move that went uh, via New Zealand. So whilst in the UK, I met my husband, Nicholas, and he was learning to fly helicopters. And somehow he was invited to try getting his helicopter license in New Zealand. And that sounded to me like a great opportunity. I'd been in the in the UK watching all the New Zealand riders and met quite a few of them and I had learned a little bit about New Zealand. It sounded like a very, very exciting place and different. So one day I just packed my bags and I said, um, I'm going to New Zealand <laughs> with Nick and we ended up there for five years, had a fantastic time. It's a beautiful country, isn't it? Oh, met some incredible people. And it was a, just a fabulous place to recharge your batteries because after 
three or four years of being under the pressure of trying to make an Olympic team and uh, keeping horses sound and getting to events and managing all the funding and everything else. I was a little bit burnt out by the whole experience. So going to New Zealand was an opportunity to recharge the batteries and to also to rediscover the, the fun of horses, you know, of just getting on, getting on a horse and just going out into the countryside and jumping a few wire fences and just enjoying, enjoying the experience instead of having to be under pressure all the time. Beautiful. So five years of unwinding in New Zealand, it sounds like heaven. Mm, yes, it was. And so we worked towards getting our New Zealand citizenship, uh, which we did. And then we were offered an opportunity to work in Queensland at the Corralbin Hotel Resort, which is an interesting place because it had, when we first saw it, we couldn't quite believe that there was a place like it because it had a runway for aeroplanes and a cross-country course running alongside it. Wow. <laughs> so, so it seemed like it was made to measure for us. So it didn't take us very long to make the decision to take the job. Yeah, absolutely. Both of your passion side by side. Where is Corralbin? So Corralbin is near Bow Desert, ah. which is um, just south of Brisbane. So it's a resort and it's still, it's still there today. Yeah. And still has an equestrian centre, yeah. So that brought you to Australia? That brought us to Australia and uh, we haven't looked back really. Uh, we've really settled in here and um, it is definitely our home now. Was the next step the Horses and People magazine? How did that come into your life? Yeah, so we worked at, uh, at the Corabin Resort. We did uh, different jobs there and at one stage, I worked in the events organising department, so conference coordinating, and and then eventually I took over managing the equestrian centre, which was fabulous, really, really fabulous. I really enjoyed that. The equestrian centre there, is that where people bring their own horses or do you have horses there that people come on holidays and have lessons with? How does that work? So it's more of an events ground. They used to run uh, what they called the Aussie Muster. So they had a few horses there just for tourist groups mm -hmm. to have a bit of a, an Australian bush experience. And But the equestrian centre was really an events centre. So we organised events of all sorts. And particularly I got involved with the Corralbin Equestrian Club, which organised events, uh, cross-country, you know, um, horse trials events. So, and of course, I met a lot of people that were big in the Australian eventing world and worked with them to organise some big events there. And it was, uh, yeah, it was really, really good fun. But then the, um, the resort came into strife and went under administration. So found ourselves without a job and after trying a few different things, the lady that had Horses and People magazine at the time, Annie Minton, and she was growing the magazine very, very fast and very successfully. She needed a hand and because of my graphic design skills, 
and my knowledge of the horse industry, she gave me a part-time job uh, just helping with, uh, with the advertising side of, of the magazine. So that's how I, I was introduced. And I was only working part-time for the magazine at that stage, yeah. That's a bit of a step from becoming an owner. How did that journey happen? Annie Minton wanted to sell. Uh, at some stage, she wanted to do other things. And Maxine Olsen came in. She, they, Her and Annie were friends. And Maxine wanted to, to buy the magazine. And I switched. they started working together. And I was working alongside, just part-time. And I got on very well with Maxine. And... Eventually, we worked out that at some stage we could be um, partners and take over. And when Annie was ready, that all happened. And yeah, and that was, that was I started working for Annie in 2004. And basically, yeah, we, Maxine and I uh, bought the magazine between 2009-2010. Yeah. And the Horses and People magazine, does it have, I've noticed in the last, I'm a subscriber and I love the magazine and I brought it because I saw Dr. Marriott Vandenberg's, well, I'd seen it in produce stores and, and picked it up a few times and my lifestyle doesn't permit me to go out and buy magazines. So if I'm really interested in something, subscription is the way that suits my world. Um, it comes in the post mm. and it's fantastic. And then I can get to it because I know it's here and I get to it when I can. And when I saw Dr. Marriott Vandenberg's um, equine permaculture and, and property management for horse properties, that was the, the step across the line for me. It seems that you have been able to collate such an extraordinary and interesting but also progressive contributors to your magazine What's the basis of the magazine? What are your core values and what are you trying to do with the magazine? So when we, when we bought uh, the magazine, it was still free at produce stores and the, the, the heart of the magazine was in that it produced a calendar of events and, and it advertised lots of service providers. But Maxine and I had a broader vision for the magazine and because of I th- probably because of my coaching background um, and my knowledge of the horse industry I saw an opportunity for the magazine to be educational and an educational platform and coincidentally this at the same time as as I took over uh, as I started working for the magazine I had come across the work of Andrew McLean and the Australian Equine Behaviour Centre. I had the great fortune of when I was looking for, for work, one of the jobs that landed on my desk was translating horse books into Spanish, from English into Spanish. And uh, because of my background in the horse industry, I was more suited to that than a professional translator because of the technical language. So I had I had translated quite a few books, and one day I... Um, this book came um, landed on my desk by Andrew McLean. It's called The Truth About Horses. And after so many years of coaching and so many years of experience riding and training and teaching and producing and competing horses, I, 
all the when I when I read and translated that book, all the puzzle pieces fell into place, and I could not believe that I had done so much and knew so little. <laughs> so it 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 just put everything in its place, and it made so much sense. So I was following Andrew McLean's work, and more or less at the same time, they found it. Andrew Paul McGreevy. Natalie Warren and a few other scientists that were working in, they were looking at horse training from, from a scientific perspective. So before they got together, the only, the only branch of science really that you could study horses through was zoology. So, or as a veterinarian, of course, but, there was um, there was a little bit of a, a jump between the different disciplines, and so nobody really had looked at ethology as as the study of behavior. A lot of people had looked at uh, or had studied horse behavior in the wild, but nobody was really looking at horse behavior in a domestic setting in the, the context of horse training that that we know as horse people. So. They founded the International Society for Equitation Science, and they really they founded uh, or they, they started a new branch of science, which is studying the interactions between humans and horses. So, I was very lucky to that the timing was just perfect for me because I translated the book. I started following the work, and then they founded the society and. Exactly the same year as uh, Maxine and I took over the magazine, 2009, there was a, a conference, the International Society for Equitation Science. They organized annual conferences to disseminate the research that's been produced. And it was in Sydney. So Maxine and I packed our bags and went down there. And we immersed ourselves in and amongst like-minded people that were progressive and were not just looking at doing things differently because, but actually trying to figure out how it really works, how things really work, why, why things happen the way they happen, always with the background of improving the horse's experience of, um, of the interaction between uh, humans and themselves. So, it was, it just fitted in so perfectly. And when we came back from Sydney, from the conference, we sat down, immediately wrote a mission statement for the magazine that we would promote or provide a platform for evidence-based information that can improve and safeguard the welfare of horses. And of course, with that, you have to take into um, into consideration that horses' welfare depends on their their people. The horses depend on their people that are looking after them, and so people's welfare and, and safety needs to be safeguarded as well. And it just fit perfectly with the business that we had just purchased: horses and people. Fantastic! It gives you a beautiful sounding board. 
So when you want to bring somebody into the magazine and you want to interview them or have them write an article, you can always go back to that one mission statement. Yes, I have found it so helpful because I had a, um, I had a background in graphic design and I had a background in coaching and I had a background in, in horses and the horse industry, but I didn't have a journalistic sort of background or formal journalism degree and I was... I didn't consider myself an editor, but having that purpose was uh, made it made the job really easy, and um, it made it, it yeah, and it attracted the right people as well. So it's finding finding people has never been, to write and contribute for, to the magazine has never been difficult, um, and it's it's been such a fantastic experience because um, it's. For me, it's um, you never stop learning, and to be associated with the contributors that contribute to horses and people is a privilege. Um, and I learn so much every every single month. I learn so much. I think it's one of those things in life, isn't it? The moment you think you know it all is um, the moment you'll probably leave the planet. Because I, I don't think I'll ever learn it all. Just when you think you've got something, you got the the next lesson comes. It's always a there's always something more. Absolutely, yeah. And when you when it when you're talking about horses, um, and we're trying to understand them because uh, we love them and we uh, want to do the best we can for them. The more we know, the better we can do for them. So, so it's it should be the driving force behind everything we do is just to have a better understanding and have uh, have as much knowledge as we can because um, if we understand why our horse is doing something then we can put something in place to support and help them if we don't understand why they're doing something we're um we're flailing around in the dark a bit yes that's right and it's a it's a little bit the same uh philosophy that you know you find in in people that do a lot of the complementary therapies is just to 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 find the cause of um issues rather than just find a band-aid that can um, treat the symptom. That's the driving purpose. And you've owned the magazine for nine years now. This is your ninth year? Yeah, so we um, basically I've been editor. I've, I've produced as editor. This will be my 103rd issue, so I'm working on my 104th issue at the moment. So, yeah, it's been a... A great big learning curve, that's for sure. What's one of the biggest lessons that you've learned over those years? I think patience um, and patience and, and understanding that certain things take the time they take. The same as you learn when you're training horses, um, things happen when they're ready to happen. So... And I think that's not not just working with the magazine, but also my involvement with the um, with the International Society for Equitation Science. So I um, I became part of the council. Um, I became a council officer in two thousand and eleven, and I started. Well, I I took over as um, the newsletter editor for the society. And then the role grew a little bit once we decided that we needed to be to have social media pre- presence. So 
I am the um, social media officer for the society and working closely with the academics that are part of the society has been just, just such an incredible experience and that's the one thing that I have really learned is that change has to happen the way it has to happen. You can't, even, even when there are things that are very frustrating and that are very obviously uh, having a negative impact on horse welfare, you have to follow a process because it takes time to change people's perception and to, and people also need to have an opportunity to do better and they need to have the knowledge to do better. Um, there's no point just banning something from happening unless you can, again, get to the cause of the issue and, um, and provide constructive solutions and constructive ways mm. to deal with um, the challenges that we all face when we are when we own when we own horses, as soon as we put um, as soon as we put fences around a horse, we have to provide them with a lot of things, and it's not always easy. So, so I think the uh, um, knowing that we have an influence as a magazine and also through the society, we we have a big influence and with big influence comes big responsibility for uh, make for making sure that when change does happen it's actually meaningful and have you heard from any of your readers are there any stories that come to mind or people that you've spoken to along the way because I know you get out to a few shows and things so you must hear from your listeners can you tell us a story off the top of your head of somebody who has really learned a lot and been able to make positive change I think uh, we we we're always overwhelmed when we, whenever we go to to any shows, um, public events, and we representing the magazine. Um, we're always overwhelmed by the positive feedback that we we get. And at some stage, we were struggling with um, knowing whether we were having an impact. You know, you're running a business, you're so busy running the business and trying to make it to the next month and uh, getting always running to a deadline when you're, when you have to publish a print magazine. And so we tend to get, you just get caught up in the, in the, in the wheel, just keep running, running, running. And you going to events where we can actually speak to readers is so refreshing because everybody's so supportive of the work we do the same, uh, you know, the same as you were making lovely comments earlier. So it's, we certainly feel that the, there are so many people out there that share the same passion for the purpose that the magazine is built around and they do find the information useful. So there's, there's always many, many stories that we hear from people uh, from, I mean, we have a, a lovely supporter who is in her seventies and uh, only a couple of years ago bought her first horse and she, she uses the, the, the magazine is she, she told us the magazine is part of her support network that makes it possible for her to, to do this at her age. So that's, um, that's just a fantastic, wow, fantastic story. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's amazing. You put your heart and soul into something. You really hope that it's having the impact. And this is a magazine that most certainly is. Yeah. So, um, and of course, now we have the big um, changes that are happening to media in general. Digital disruption. The Mm. digital disruption, yes. And so it's a completely new set of challenges for us where what we were doing even three years ago um, doesn't doesn't quite work in the same way that it, it used to. So um, it's an interesting, certainly an interesting time, and it's putting putting to the test how much people value uh, print uh, content, and not just print content, but how much people value intelligent and quality content. So, uh, because we are so saturated, we're fed so much media day in, day out through our mobile phones or computers, television, radio, podcasts. um, And how, yeah, whether people are still prepared to pay for a print publication and whether, and what people are, you know, whether people are still prepared to, um, or still, when I say prepared, I mean still value it as a as a as a product, um, and that's being put to the test at the moment. Yeah, you do have a digital publication as well, so that's one way that you've shifted with the times a little. Yes, I think time is a big issue for for most people these days, and we keep being told that that people really appreciate the print experience. So um, the same as, as you said uh, yourself. I, yeah, I most certainly do. I love it when it turns up in my mailbox it's, and it's there for me whenever I'm ready and it's, it's, I love sitting with that little piece of paper, not little, but, you know, having something physical in my hands. Whilst I do consume, you know, I'm a podcaster, I do love podcasts, but I use different media for different things podcasting is for my personal development and and things of interest but when it comes to things like horses and gardening for some reason they're the things that I love in print yeah so I think we're very lucky that we identified a niche early on and the I mean we obviously didn't do it for commercial reasons we did it because it was our passion I think that's one of the reasons why the magazine's still doing well is because it is it provides something that people do value which is um well a lot of the research is already telling us that when people want to understand uh, or get get more understanding on a particular subject they prefer to read it in print than they do um than they do digitally so so i think that is um it was about 2 or 3 years ago where we had a really, well, uh, certainly I did. I had a very deep um, sort of look at whether, you know, we were doing the right thing and whether we, which way we wanted to go. Because, yes, we started the digital, um, the online version or digital version of the magazine um, in 2011. So it's been, you know, it's been a long time. However, digital magazines haven't grown in the way that people expected them to grow because people still like that print experience. And so we also have 
all our uh, all the articles that we have published are stored on our website because they're educational content they uh, we update them every now and again we revisit them and update them um, and they're all stored on our on our website and again a little while ago we also decided to put a paywall on our website which we were I suppose we're one of the things that we suffer from is that we are always quite ahead of our times and uh, people may not be that prepared because of the amount of digital content that is available for free people might not be prepared to um, to pay for content I think the tables are turning now and we probably have to thank uh, what the, <laughs> the Mr. Trump in the United States for that because nowadays people are valuing a lot more the, the knowing where the information that they're reading is actually coming from and whether they trust the sources or not so uh, there's there's a bit of a learning curve happening in the in the population in the public about you know you you can have access to all this information online for free but do you trust it is it reliable who's writing it why are they writing it is there a you know are they trying to sell you something or are they trying to just um shock you or um or is it something that is is as reasonable as true as up to date and as practical and constructive as possible and that's that's the niche that we have we strive to to maintain so it'll be up to it'll be up to readers really to tell us whether they um they still value that or not so we'll just have to keep doing what we do and um and keep trying to adapt and probably maybe present the information in different formats would be a really useful thing to do so that people can choose which way they want to consume it however that takes a lot of resources and and at some stage people have to also realize that in order to produce all that content it it does cost money and uh, we need to be as sustainable as everybody else and um, as sustainable as the, as we want the horse industry to be as well mm, absolutely that's the other thing i love about the magazine itself is so if if i'm interested in a topic yes i can go to google yes i can punch in something i can look i can you know do loads of research and and figure out what it is that i want to see and um, the, the simplicity that I love about the magazine is one, I have a trusted source because over time I've learned that, like I said, the quality and the forward thinking of the articles and the people who are presenting in this magazine is fantastic. But what I also love is I learned things that I would never look for on other in, in, in any way. In the magazine that I have in front of me, you talk about travel related pneumonia. I had no idea. And I wouldn't ever have an idea. And that's not something that I would actually come in and Google and look for in anything. That's something that I actually learn about because I'm reading the magazine and it's in one place. I can learn about 10 or 15 different things from one place that I didn't actually know before. And in owning horses, as you said before, we all realize how much we don't know. Yeah. You know, we all think we know a lot and we do know a lot, but my goodness there's so much we don't know and that's um that's one thing that i do take very seriously 
in and it's it, these the, all this disruption digital dis disruption is making it even clearer to me that as an editor you have a responsibility to give people information that they didn't didn't necessarily think they needed um but that once they have it they're they're better prepared and they they just have increased their knowledge um and they have they might have a better understanding and that's something that like you said you know the the way the the world is at the moment and the algorithms that drive youtube and facebook and google and all these things they sort of feed you the information that you like to see and so and that's all very well but if you went to say if you went to a to a school canteen and you just fed children what they wanted to eat they wouldn't be very well prepared um by the end of high school and they wouldn't be very healthy and they wouldn't they would have missed out on so many different tastes and flavors that they didn't even know existed um you have to that's a daily conversation that i have with my 4-year-old it's a wonderful and <laughs> i know you want it but that's it so you have to sometimes sometimes you have to try something that's not quite as pleasant uh or it might not seem as pleasant but um as long as it's as long as it's you know it's presented well and uh and it's providing you know as far as the information is concerned we're moving away now from food but as far as information about the horse industry is concerned there are many issues that we need to talk about and we need to talk about them intelligently constructively and respectfully because if we don't uh if we just deny them and deny that they exist um they're just going to fester and they're going to be dam they're going to damage the industry as a whole and i think it'll be a very very sad day when we have governments jumping in to regulate um what we do with with our horses because we've lost the support of the greater community of the great of the greater public we've lost the social license mm -hmm. to um to use horses the way we we want to use them so i think mm -hmm. it's a it's a big responsibility for us to uh, continue to present uh, a wide range of different aspects of the horse industry and always in a in a measured and in a in a constructive way if possible yeah. mm, and the wonderful thing about this magazine even though we're in queensland australia is anyone in the world could read this and get something fantastic out of it it's not like it's just about australian horses just about australian riders and just about australian land you know anyone out there in the world can actually access these articles from your website the whole lot is there so if there are any listeners from anywhere in the world do check out horses and people magazine you too can have access to this wealth of knowledge that you've put together for us yeah and it continues to grow every month cuz uh, yeah like i said all the all the articles that we curate and prepare very carefully to appear in print uh then go on our on our website and that's another nice thing uh for me of working still being able still having the opportunity to work with the print publication it's it, it just 
has that added layer of um, of preparation that goes into producing the the, the material and presenting the material. Um, whereas on a website, you can just throw text and you can go and edit it and you can go and make corrections if necessary or fix typos, etc. We, uh, I'm sure we'd never get it right, but um, we do go to great lengths to present the magazine because when it goes to print, it goes to print. It's, and um, thousands of copies are going to be produced and that's the end of it. If you make a mistake, it's going to be there. So... That's uh, that. Even though it puts a lot of pressure on on our small team, it's still um, it's still nice to know that when it's gone to print, you've done the best you, the best job you possibly can with it. Yeah. And in a world that is speeding up so much, it's beautiful. And from what I'm learning as well in my other interviews, you know, one of the most important things in working with horses is patience, you know, taking the time that it takes and just slowing down and listening. And a print magazine helps you to do that as well. You know, there's nothing better than sitting down quietly, cup of tea, magazine, you know, basking in our beautiful sunshine here in Queensland and taking in the magazine instead of, you know, it's it's not the same feeling as, as flicking through on a screen, although it's the same information and it's beautiful. I love, I still love that that print for myself personally because it allows me permission to slow down. Yeah, yeah, and that's really great. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people um, resonate with that. And um, once, you know, um, a lot of our, we have, we have readers, subscribers, that have kept every single issue and they have piles of them, piles of them in their house. And they, they often find us when we are at events, like if we were at Equitana or some, or a horse expo or something like that. Um, yeah, they, they, they tell us and they, and some people might come and they ask us for a particular issue that is missing from the collection. And, uh, and it's just beautiful to, to hear that. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Um, they will because they are like textbooks. It's not like um, it's not like we're reading a a story of something that's happened. We're actually reading really great educational, evidence-based information. I still have most of my copies. The only copies I don't have, they started a a local community library here oh, yeah. in um, my local area in Sanford. So I I do donate some of those magazines there because I cannot bear to even recycle them it's like that they're too there's too much great information for them to to go into any recycling bin so i will wait and so that's i donate to my local library so oh that's fantastic more and more people can can read so they are definitely something that does not go in the bin in my household either <laughs> fantastic that sounds really really great because um yeah we do have um my, uh, libraries subscriptions as well so and that's an area that I think uh, would be would be good to grow as well is that if people um, want it, you know, maybe they they a subscription is outside their budget, um, they could ask their library as well to stock it for them, and they could um, yeah go and it's a good excuse to sit down at the library in a quiet spot, and uh, and have a have a flick through to, and read the articles that are of interest so yeah 
That's a fantastic idea. And, you know, I think it's been many, many years that we've been talking about, you know, people have been saying, you know, it's the end of books and things like that, but it, I don't think it will ever happen. I, I think there's um, there's too much beauty in a library and a physical book for it to ever be gone forever. For I hope so. I certainly hope so. Yes, I certainly hope so. Because there's um, it's just a different uh, relationship that you have with that information when you, when it's in print, and it's about the experience. Yes, in businesses, it's about the experience that the person has from the moment they first see your product to the consumption of your product as well. And um, there's a beautiful experience that can be had, a physical experience with a paper magazine. Yeah, and um, so yeah, so it's um, it's a, yeah, it's certainly. A very interesting area um, to work in, and of course, we have the added advantage of being our own bosses. So um, we are independent; um, we don't have to answer to a board or a sh- or a bunch of shareholders. Or uh, so, and that has is a bit of a double-edged sword because we end up um, pr- we always prioritize our purpose and our passion for uh, the commercial interest and um, we do have to strike a balance to make sure that we we we're still here for years to come yeah I can't see you going anywhere anytime soon because I love magazines and I look at a lot of magazines and I haven't seen the quality of of what you produce and anything else thus far well thank you very much for that that's fantastic so Christina where is it that people can find you if you want to subscribe, subscribe so we can pick up your magazines in newsagents in produce stores. Is that correct? So we're at newsagents and we are at some produce stores. Um, but if you, the easiest way to make sure you get hold of the magazine is to subscribe, and we you can do that over the phone um, in our office or uh, on our website which is www.horsesandpeople.com.au. And our office is in Rosewood. You can Google us. I'm sure we'll come up, Horses and People magazine. And, of course, we have a Facebook page, and you can find us there as well and get in touch through Facebook. That's another easy way to, to get personal service. The handle is Horses and People magazine? It's just Horses and People. Okay. Yep. Great. So, um, yeah, so we're on Facebook and Twitter and, and we, we work very closely. We have uh, Maxine and I, um, the partners, and Maxine um, does a lot of the admin work and sales. So she looks after our advertisers. And um, Linda in the office, Linda Zupank, um, is a wonderful team member as well. And she's our customer relations manager. That's her official role. And um, she's also a wonderful photographer. So the three of us work really closely together to produce the magazine. And we're always available. So many ways to contact us. And we'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. And I'll definitely put links to all of those things in the show notes for anyone who'd like to have a look. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me today. But even more so, thank you for what it is that you do. For horses on a daily basis. I know there's a lot of horse people out there, including me, who are very grateful for everything that you do. And if horses could talk, I'm sure they'd be saying thank you as well. 
Well, I hope we, we contribute. Um, yeah, that's the purpose is for us to be helpful and provide something of value to horse people. So, yeah, we'll just keep working at it. I definitely believe that you do that. So thank you again. Thanks very much. Isn't it great to turn the table and hear the story of someone who provides us with so many great stories herself each month? You will find links to Christina's website and social media in the show notes and also on the blog of my website. On the blog of my website, you'll also see photos of the horses that Christina rode and the horses that she has now. My website is comealongfortheride.com.au. If you get a moment, you might also like to have a listen to earlier episodes in this podcast. The story of how Kirsty Hagger brought the critically endangered Spanish Mustangs to Australia is a wonderful story of a dedicated and big-hearted woman. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It helps us climb up the rankings and it will help us get the message out there. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. You can also share us on your social media, tell all your friends about us and ask them to join us on our mission as well. You will find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. You'll find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and you'll find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.